Welcome to Counter Stories, our favorite time of the day, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I express are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, um, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. We don't have Anthony Galloway today, our regular crew member. Uh, he's unable to join us, but we have a fabulous guest, uh, and I'm inviting uh, our guest to introduce himself and say a little bit more about himself. Great. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast today. I will do my best to fill uh, some very, very big shoes. But uh, my name is Huang Murphy. Uh, you see him pronouns, and I am the founder and executive director of a nonprofit based here in St. Paul uh, named Foster advocates. And uh, just to say a little bit about our work, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, our foster advocates is our name, but it's also what we do. We foster advocacy by working with uh, young people who have experienced foster care to create policy change. So some of those things that we do engage on are leadership programming for young people who have experienced care, but also big things like the Foster and Hire Education Act, which we passed last year, that gives anyone who experienced foster care ages 13 and up until age 27 in the state of Minnesota free access to any uh, college in the state of Minnesota. Uh, that's two-year, one-year programs, tech programs, um, and all participating private schools as well. That's wow. phenomenal. Let's let's unpack that in just a little bit here, Huang. The one thing that I do want to highlight is May is Foster Care Awareness Month. Uh, across our country. And so we want to make sure that folks are aware of that. And that is really the primary reason as far as, as far as timing is concerned that we have invited you. So Huang, you know, say a little bit more about yourself. I know uh, the great work that you're done, you've been doing in community, uh, given just the important issues with foster care. And we, we really want to go into some of the measures and successes that, that you've been able to, you and your team have been able to achieve. Um, but I know that you have a particular passion and your background as a former English teacher, uh, high school English teacher. So help us understand your journey into this role and into this um, field in particular, because it's a it's a very uh, specific field uh, that I would venture to say not a whole lot of people know about. Right. They We've all heard foster care, loosely speaking, being referenced in society. But. Unless you are embedded in the system, and, and I, I speak from experience in terms of having friends who have navigated the foster care system and the trajectories and difficulties and barriers they've experienced personally. But before we go down any of those paths, really help us connect the dots in terms of your passion for this work and what brought you here. Yeah, uh, so starting off with super easy Questions. Uh, no, um, <laughs> That's how we go. That's how we roll at Conference <laughs> Stories, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I would be remiss to also not mention that it's uh, API Heritage Month as well. So I feel doubly honored as a Asian that's American right. and as a uh, foster. I, I don't know if yeah. that's how it works, but I, I expect a double discount anytime I like go somewhere. <laughs> but um, it hasn't happened yet. But really, you know, I got started in this work by accident. Uh, you know, I didn't want to be the foster care guy. Uh, I didn't want to have my life be determined by the, you know, by things I couldn't control, by things that happened to me. And so I didn't, you know, I quickly realized that 
I wasn't going to be able to be a social worker. That wasn't just not in the cards for me personally. Uh, and so, but I knew I wanted to impact the system for young people. And so I went into ed policy work. Uh, so I went to Syracuse uh, as part of my undergrad and studied public policy there. Uh, was just, you know, a small town kid. Uh, Ada is where I went to high school, um, you know, but from East Side St. Paul. And then when I entered care, then landed up there. And uh, it was a major adjustment, but uh, was able to go teach in Baltimore and then uh, get my master's at Johns Hopkins in uh, ed in education and teaching there. And, uh, you know, really that's where I realized I was a social worker, just had a different title. Uh, many of my young people had experienced foster care and I knew exactly what they were going through. And how could I not use that knowledge to help them navigate that? Uh, I also knew then what needed to change. And so I left the classroom. I had to do something else. I want to say it's because I wanted to make a bigger impact, but I, I really don't think there's a bigger impact than uh, teaching. Uh, but I just knew that I couldn't do that frontline work anymore. So, uh, you know, went to the U.S. Department of Ed where I was uh, able to be a public policy fellow uh, in the last year of the Obama term working for then Secretary King and was able to, you know, really just work on uh, pushing out the regulations for the Every Student Succeeds Act. And then in the transition was it came back to the state of Minnesota uh, really kind of newly engaged around this work. You know, what you do when you're not sure what the future holds, you go back home. And home um, was this nebulous place that I didn't, you know, that I survived but didn't really understand, which is our state. Uh, and realized that the things I experienced when I was in foster care, which I had hoped were uniquely bad, were actually pretty typical. Uh, the only thing unique about me is that I had made it, that I had been lucky enough to get through. Now that I was in a position to both understand how policy works, but also have this very uh, real experience in in care, I had to use that to uh, make sure that, you know, I'm not the only one that gets out. And so quit my job and founded this nonprofit, and it's been three and a half years. So... Wang, I'm wondering if you can, uh, and welcome to social work. I mean, regardless of uh, what route we go, many of us end up in this area. Um, but I think more importantly, I think that, um, I think often many of our listeners and, and, and many of us included, when we say foster care, there may be like certain things that come to people's minds. And I'm wondering as, you know, since you've started your own nonprofit and your, your agency in terms of advocacy, if, if, uh, you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about, about what actually falls under foster care. You know, I mean, yeah. and, and, yeah. uh, so, so people can understand. So I know that in your introduction, you mentioned that, uh, you were in foster care. Well, you know, one, one item I've never mentioned in, in, uh, on Connor stories is when I was younger, when I was 15, I was going through some stuff at home with my father and I ended up in a group home. So, um, come to find out later that any removal from your home puts you in that category of mm -hmm. foster care, mm -hmm. even though I was in a group home. Mm -hmm. So, I think it might help individuals understand if, if you don't mind, if, if you could explain exactly everything that falls under that heading of foster care. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, welcome to the club. Uh, you know, really, any out-of-home placement is what we define as foster care. Uh, and so what we know in the, you know, Indigenous community here in Minnesota is that means one in four. So that means uh, one in four uh, Indigenous community members had to experience foster care and count as, as fosters. Uh, so I use the term foster. Um, a lot of folks, uh, I think nationally, will use things like foster alum. Um, I'm just going to be real. I really, really hate that term. Uh, the reason is because I think, think of the things that you're a alum of. Uh, you're an alum of, you know, usually prestigious colleges. Uh, you're an alum of programs. You're an alum of things that you choose and have, cho- have been chosen, um, you know, uh, that you're, you're proud to be part of and that you had, you know, a lot of agency in, in doing so. Um, you know, didn't choose to be incarcerated, uh, didn't choose to experience uh, trauma, uh, th- didn't choose to be separated from our families. Uh, so foster alum doesn't quite fit, but foster, I think, you know, encaptures the fact that, that you're in care. You're not always a young person or not always a youth, uh, but, you know, still a foster once you get older, because at least in, you know, my early work when I was engaging with other fosters across the state, uh, we had to find a way to define ourselves in our community. You can't organize unless you have a shared purpose and identity. And for us, it was this experience that was really unique in experiencing out-of-home placement. And so foster for us, uh, you know, I think foster creates a really significant cultural identity uh, akin to other immutable characteristics that goes unrecognized, uh, you know, once people age out or leave care, uh, you know, or are adopted. And so responsibly use the term foster to name and claim that. But um, to answer your question more directly, uh, foster care is that you were separated at some point from your family as a child by the state uh, or by uh, and by the state, I mean loosely, like by government actors, uh, not simply the state of Minnesota. So that can be a initiative tribe, that can be a county. When we think about the impact, and, and you started down this by citing that one in four indigenous uh, youth are fostered, this was this is another reason why we thought this would be a compelling conversation for us because fostering is disproportionately represented in our BIPOC communities, uh, but also just in terms of the, the systemic reason for that, right? I see that you've been in public policy, which means you've been involved in systems change um, and how important it is to look at the cause of these in terms of systems change and how they are uh, betraying what should be happening, and that as a result ends up uh, manifesting itself in these disparities. Yeah, I mean, Minnesota often likes to talk about, you know, how exceptional it is and, you know, how amazing it is. Well, we are exceptional. Uh, We're the worst state in the country for separating Indigenous Mm -hmm. communities and breaking up families. Uh, You are 25 times more likely to enter care as an Indigenous person in our state than if you are white. Uh, and that's a stark reality. That's the worst disparity of any state in the country. We should not get comfortable with that in any way, shape, or form. It is horrendous. We say the boarding school era ended. I'm not so sure. Uh, based on what I'm hearing from our uh, Native youth, uh, th- this is not a, a thing that has been corrected for. It has been 
recognized and has been addressed. Maine has done truth and reconciliation around foster care and the boarding schools. Minnesota has done very little. For our African-American and Black uh, peers, uh, you know, you're three times more likely to enter care. Now, three times doesn't sound so bad next to, you know, 25, but three times more likely to enter care is still really, really awful. Uh, and there's some context I'd like to provide there, which is that the largest growing population uh, who's experiencing foster care is two or more mixed race. Mm. What we know is about 50% or so are African-American black mixed with white. And the other half roughly are about Native American uh, mixed white, which, you know, is also is a, a complexity on its own conversation. Um, but that the numbers are probably a little bit higher. Uh, we don't do the, a great job of making sure that people understand uh, what the racial ident- identification is used for or why it's important. Um, and as part of that, you know, really what I'd like to address is that when we talk about disproportionality, we often talk about the over-representation in a system, but it also can mean the under-representation. This disproportionality in the opposite also says right. something, and it doesn't yeah. necessarily say something good. We right. over-police Native and Black communities, but then we under-protect Native, Latin, and white communities, is what I would argue. There's a cost to that over-policing, and it's that these other communities then don't get the care that they deserve and the attention that they probably should. You know, and I think about, like, what I see in, in the community, in, like, my community, at least, is, like, something we really don't talk about. You know, so like if if somebody it's usually the situation where, you know, um, an uh, an older person or grandparent is taking care of a grandchild because the parents, you know, are um, the state has deemed the parents inadequate to care for the child. But you don't talk about it as I'm fostering my grandkids because, you know, their mother can't take care of them. It, It just becomes they're my grandkids and it's I take care of them. And nobody really questions it as far as like, oh, that's foster care, right? The state says she can't have that's foster care. It's just like, oh, that's what we do, right? It's our, our grandchild, so we're going to take care of it. But really, it's foster care. And, but we don't use that term. And so then when we hear foster care, or we hear that word foster, it comes with these bad connotations. But what we don't realize is it's actually happening in our community right now. And so there's this stigma around it, right, when you say foster like if you're a kid who's coming out of foster, if you um, are a parent whose kids had to go into foster care when you get them back, or if you're the grandparent or you're the auntie or somebody taking care of a relative's child, that, I guess, is considered fostering if the state has set, deemed their parent not fit to to care for them. It's, you know, the Hmong community and, and the... Uh, Anishinaabe community, there's a lot of similarities because oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, everyone else steps in and helps raises that child because often mom and dad are too busy, you know, putting food on the table, doing this, that, and the other. And so in the American Indian community, it's a cultural thing for that to happen. Right. Now, but to touch on, and this is the area where I'm sure Wong works in terms of his advocacy because, you know, in one of my previous positions, I was commissioner of health and human services for the Mille Lacs Band. 
So I had mm-hmm. to deal with these issues daily. And now the first time I was up there was, was in the 90s. And so while this was a cultural thing, what we were aware of is that the county was still providing support for those individuals. But what many of us became aware of is that there was a different rate the county paid for someone who was a relative and just providing that care. Or if you got a certificate or license, then you got a higher rate. So the argument at that time in the American Indian community is that we need to get our grandparents and our aunts and uncles certified and licensed so that they could get this higher rate. So that's what we did. But when I came back the second term, later in in, uh, about 2009, uh, one of the things that I had to do is I had to sign off on all these foster care certificates that band members had. And I was absolutely astounded by the number we had that I had to sign off on. So what was so what had been the issue when I was up there in the 90s was trying to get our grandparents at higher rate. Now I'm signing like two, three hundred certificates. Wong touched on it. There, there's issues all over. And then in the American Indian community, you you throw in um, you know, one of the one of the things the American Indian community did to combat our children being removed and uh, put in boarding schools. But beyond that, there are other stories in terms of our community suffering from uh, the dominant culture in their this drive to assimilate us. And one of the things that they they did that's not talked about is that they just removed children from Indian families and gave them out for adoption to white families, often without the mothers even being told. And, and uh, this happened clear up until the 70s. And I kid you not, there are so many Native children that were just removed from your home, from homes, for no reason other than to just place them in white families. There so, were re- there were reports of that happening down at the border, right? When we were, you know, when families were being separated at the border. There were reports oh, that— Oh, you mean, you mean recently during— Recently, yeah. During the quote-unquote caravans. But this was happening in the American Indian community on a, on a wholesale level. And so uh, that's why the tribes got together and created the Indian Child Welfare Act. And it was a way to try— for the American Indian community to try to keep those kids connected with their culture. I mean, that was the driving force behind ICWA. Now, so what was we, that then? What, what what was that demand? That demand was that they they would uh, indigenous kids would be placed with indigenous families. Not exactly. It was that if that child had a connection or was enrolled or eligible for enrollment or a descendant of a tribe that that the tribe then um, had to be notified and could be in, and get involved with that case. Ah, uh, okay. Now, the hope was that by that the child would, uh, would be uh, kept in the community, but that's not always the case. 
right? So I think people, I think that's one of the misconceptions about ICWA that at least I hear from, from members of the dominant culture when they're working so hard to try to adopt Indian children is they think ICWA was created to prevent them from doing that. And that's not really what ICWA was created. It was created to, to try to ensure that that child doesn't lose connection with its heritage. I would venture to guess that Huang has, has quite a bit of, of oh, insight yeah. on this. And I would just add before inviting Huang to, to weigh in that uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, also known as ICWA, as Don has mentioned, was passed in 1978. So it's relatively new, if you will, compared to the historical displacement of our Native youth. Uh, but Huang, what's, what's coming up for you as you you hear the concerns and, and points made by Don and, and Hli. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to cover. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just address it kind of in reverse order, but, uh, or in the order. Um, Hli, you know, really what you're speaking to is what, what I often hear. When, when I first started this work, I actually got some pushback from uh, elders because they were like, well, why would you want to bring out all these bad issues? We know what's been happening in our families to not rock the boat. We don't talk about it. That neither protects children, nor does it combat racism either. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we don't particularly like the solution of foster care, which, <laughs> trust me, every foster is going to agree with that. But there's also a lot of young people who have had to endure far too much who are left in their uh, homes. And you know, at least when we're talking about Ramsey County in Minnesota, which is where St. Paul is, or the fastest growing population in need of child, of child protection are Asians. And that's largely driven by Southeast Asian community members. Uh, that means Hmong, Viet, uh, Laotian, you know, really just that like group of refugees that came to, to this country, uh, with a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of things that we were trying to work through and that's showing up. Um, so just want to mention that as, as like part of that, um, and uh, I, I know there's a new conversation be, being had, and I think we get to then define that and um, address that differently. Hopefully, if we engage around foster care, this is an Asian American issue, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Um, and just like a uh, couple of things, you know, Don, you spoke to a lot of things as a non-Indigenous uh, person. Um, you know, there's a lot that I can't speak to, but, you know, what I can speak to are certain specifics about foster care and how it relates to the Indigenous community. But for more information on that, you know, just want to plug two quick things. Uh, Blood Memory, uh, a documentary done by Sandy Whitehawk, really speaks to that experience of boarding schools and how there was literally a practice of, you know, taking children literally on the street that when social workers would drive by, you know, they were taught to run inside. Otherwise, they would just literally get snatched up. And uh, that was an extension of this belief that if you educate the child, you destroy the Indian. It, it, it is genocide. It was meant to break families uh, in order to destroy Native American culture. Genocide has not necessarily ended. It just, it just changed. So I would also plug the This Land podcast. Um, they've been covering the current challenge uh, of ICWA um, that's being brought to the Supreme Court. In Minnesota, we'll just name, we have MIFPA, which is um, a little bit more of a protection than ICWA provides, and so, but that's Minnesota-specific. The fact that you mentioned blood memory, you just kind of blew my world. So 
I actually facilitated a discussion at Metro State University with Drew Nichols, Sandy Whitehawk, mm-hmm. Shannon Smith, the current director of uh, the ICWA Legal Center, ICWA Law Center. She is in blood memory, and she was on the panel, as well as the the person who created that office, legal uh, legal office, ICWA office, Mark Mark uh, Fiddler. Mark created the ICWA office and now is one of the lawyers leading the fight to do away with, with ICWA. And so it was one of the most powerful um, um, events that I was a part of. And you also mentioned the other thing that Sandy Whitehot was a part of, which was the main reconciliation effort in which there's also a separate documentary on, on that. And, 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 uh, so Sandy, I know, you know, because Sandy was one of these ch- children who was just removed from her family and totally disconnected. And, and so blood, bl- uh, blood memory is her story of that journey back, not only to find out who her family was, but who she was as a Native American. I mean, it's one of the most powerful, uh, things to ever see. And then also, what she has done for the American Indian community to return individuals back to the community. I mean, so there, I mean, there, you know, there's just so much in that one documentary and it's so powerful. I watched that film Blood Memory twice and I I completely agree with you, Don. And um, it was painful for me uh, to watch and and to listen to the, the trauma that, um, our Native youth and families uh, for generations have faced, right? Huang, you had started the conversation with regard to uh, your own journey education-wise and and reaching a success level that is really unusual for foster uh, survivors, for lack of a better word, right? Uh, which is, it's my understanding that there's a very small percentage of folks who have gone through the foster care system who are able to go on to college uh, and an even a smaller percentage who are able to go on and get a graduate uh, degree as well. So can you speak to that in terms of the dynamics, the context that that impacts that uh, and the various issues that are uh the intersectionality of these issues that manifest themselves in, in, in these different barriers. Yeah. Uh, would it be all right if I just said a little bit about what Don was oh, addressing go for it. first? Yeah. 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 Uh, so just wanted to just kind of just mention that one, I wish I would have known about the panel. I would have loved to have been there just because, uh, you know, uh, Marcus reached out to me um, to talk about other stuff and uh, it is interesting um, how race and identity show up and, in spaces. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, we just mentioned is that, you know, ho- hopefully Cindy Whitehawk listens to this and, uh, you know, is open to meeting again. But um, one of the most powerful things I ever experienced in my life uh, about four years ago when I moved back to Minnesota was, um, you know, Sandy invited me uh, to the returning uh, adoptees and fostered Indians powwow that was done at the Equal Law Center. And, as you know, someone who was born in Vietnam came here when I was two with my family, uh, and then what you know was separated from my family when I was eight. You know, like I really think of it as I was a refugee from my country, 
than as a refugee from my family. And that is something that um, I had never seen another community do before. Native Americans were welcoming people back. Uh, in at least in my community, in my experience was that, you know, wasn't Asian enough to be part of the Vietnamese community and absolutely am not white enough to be part of the white community. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, you know, we're in this bardo or this in-between place or like limbo. We belong mm-hmm. either here nor there. That's a hard place to live. Uh, it's so and- new in a sense that, it, I mean, it's not new, but the concept of it in the legal sense is new to our immigrant communities, you know, that it's strange because like, yeah, like I married a white guy. And so my parents are always like, oh, you're white now. So I was, you know, that and that kind of stuff. And like, you know, my uh, my nieces and nephews who are mixed are like, oh, the white kids, you know, so immediately it's already like this kind of that that's already a barrier to. And so I, I can understand when you say that, like the the welcoming ceremony was is a surprise to you because I, I totally understand and, and see that in community, in our Southeast Asian immigrant community. I'd love to have the welcome home ceremonies as well. And I think that's a great idea. And I think, you know, we just have to understand, like, we may have been placed with somebody. We may be have the blood of another culture in us or another race in us. But that doesn't mean we're any less Hmong or any less Vietnamese. You know, and I think that's a conversation that's still happening, right? We're still in the process of really discovering that, um, especially with our elders. Yeah, and I think it speaks to challenge and power of identity, right? Uh, Never saw my identity as powerful growing up, but it wasn't until later on that I recognized that there's a lot of power uh, being in space. But, you know, as I got engaged more, uh, recognize or saw this challenge that, you know, I still feel that if I, you know, as we do in the Asian, Asian community and, and others, we call upon our ancestors to give us guidance. I fear that if I were to do that, they wouldn't show up. My thread was cut. That's not my fault, but I, but I face a punishment for it. And that's something that I want to explore more and think about like how is how do we as a community welcome people back? And that experience that Sandy allowed me to, you know, just be a fly on the wall for, uh, you know, I, I wanted to weep. Uh, it was just so powerful. Uh, you know, there's a hole that is left. Not only did we lose our family, but uh, I lost everything. I lost my connection to culture. I lost, you know, I was called Hong for a long time. I lost even my name. Uh, the only thing I kept from my original, um, you know, before I became, before I entered foster care was my first name. That's it. That's the only thing I got to take with me. And so when we think about foster care, uh, we have to hold this duality of, you know, saving children, arguably, but then also deeply harming them. And so, you know, I, I also try not to use the word removal because, you know, removal by definition is the separation of something unwanted. In my experience, children are not unwanted. So, you know, I try to just, just use the word family separation uh, because, uh, you know, I, I think language matters. And so I, I try to be more exact, but uh, that's, that, that is one of the things that, you know, we've, we've got to figure out. Um, either we can decide that for ourselves and our communities or trust me, the dominant culture will decide it for us. 
And so we're in a unique space where we get to, you know, learn from the harm that's happened to other communities and try to respond. But, um, you know, I guess to speak to that outcomes that you had uh, mentioned, um, you know, I tried to really combat this individual striver narrative that, you know, uh, if I'm on this pedestal of being really amazing, then, um, you know, this bootstraps thing, then my siblings who had way, way worse outcomes then just didn't simply work hard enough or weren't good enough. And that is not true. I got lucky. And that doesn't allow me to claim, you know, my own experience, but it also then doesn't harm other communities uh, and, you know, my brothers and sisters in uh, care. And so one of the things I would just mention statistically is about 3% of fosters go on to receive a college degree. Now, in the Midwest, uh, the data <laughs> is a little worse. The data tells us that only about 2% uh, go on to get a um, you know, two-year degree on time. So by the time that they're you know, 21, which is not really on time. And the number is so low that statistically the number who get a four-year degree on time rounds out to zero. Now, we know that that's not true because we, we know one or two examples, but in statistics, weird stuff like that can, can happen um, where you round down to literally nothing. Uh, so whenever you meet a foster who has you know graduated from college, you're meeting a unicorn. We shouldn't exist. And yet here we are. And so I think that that's one of the uh, really the start challenges in the ed- education space. A lot of people don't engage around foster care. We're not a big enough, you know, quote unquote problem for foundations to really care deeply about. So at least as a nonprofit, we, we try to engage them around other issues. One of them is around education, uh, because it's so critical for fosters. When we're disconnected from culture and family, we know that how people find success in this economy or any economy, uh, and well into adulthood is through their social networks, either through family who helps them find placement or passion for a job, or through, you know, uh, cultural connections that at least, you know, your cultural community then can provide this for you. When fosters have been separated from all of that and displaced even in a location, we don't have that network. And so I deeply encourage fosters to go to some type of college for that reason, because you not only need the accreditation and the skills, because you won't be able to rely on these other networks, but then you also get to build one. And college can often be a place where you can build social connections and start to connect with folks, right? There's uh, a foster youth who's in our programs that, you know, uh, he was taught that um, college for him was half the uh, test you take and half the hands you shake. And I thought that was such a, a pithy but great, like, way to respond. Because, like, I didn't, I, I didn't realize that when, when I was going to school, I, was, I barely went um, and I did my best. But... Uh, you know, I think that that is something that if fosters knew, um, while they might be the first in their families to go to school, they're not the only. And that's something that the more we talk about, the more we need to shift. But it starts with better data collection and better response. You know, Marion Wright Edelman, who's a well-renowned civil rights uh, leader and former executive director of the Children's Fund at the national level, has many quotes, one of which has always resonated with me for for quite some time is, if you can't see it, you can't dream it. So if our foster youth are not seeing their peers going to college, um, 
then how do they dream it, right? And so I, I just attest to what your statement is about really pushing education and letting folks know that there are others out, out here, you know, and that um, while you might be seen as a unicorn initially, the more movement that we bring to an awareness to this issue, uh, the more capacity we have as a society to change that. Uh, and speaking of change, you know, I, I'm a proponent of having what's called an inside game and an outside game. And I see you uh, having both of those roles through your your career here, you know, with the public policy that, that you uh, mentioned earlier uh, in the Obama administration and then what you're doing now. Can you talk to us about the importance of the work that you're doing, maybe some of the wins, uh, such as when you started out with uh, free uh college access uh, for some use for some duration, and speak about the strategic initiatives that you and your team um, have led, and more broadly, inviting us all in how we can add to your success along those lines. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would just say that, like, you know, anyone who's done, you know, uh, work with uh, Tulu resources knows is that it's not a magic trick. Uh, it takes real hard work. It takes funding. Um, and that's something that fosters while we know how to deal with scarcity. Uh, you know, Minnesota has so much. Um, this doesn't have to be this way. Uh, and we can do it differently. And the people who know that best are fosters who quite literally carry the, the scars of the system. And so we, so we know it best. Uh, and so really, I just try to get out of the way of the genius of young people who who know what needs to be different. The things I'm saying now were the same things I was saying when I was 18. Uh, and the, the only difference is that people hear me now. Uh, I learned how to get people to listen. Uh, or rather, I learned how to get into the room and then I shouted at them. Uh, I tried to do that <laughs> less. It's not super effective. Um, but what I would just say is that, you know, I started this work because I thought people just didn't give a shit. Uh, but I'm glad to be wrong. People just don't know. And so it's my job to make sure that they understand. Because if you know better, then the hope is that you'll do better. Uh, and so now that all of you know, and all the listeners, like, I expect you to do better as well. So... Uh, I guess it's a gotcha moment where, hey, I tricked you, you learn more, and now you have this other responsibility. <laughs> so you are welcome. But, um, you know, a lot of things that we have worked on are, uh, you know, started this work by myself. Um, we're now a team of five. Um, and uh, the first bill we passed was the Keep Fosters in School Act, which is just really, you know, one of the issues that we saw was just fosters were in limbo. You're separated from your family, you're placed in a shelter home, and the shelter home's like, well, you know, you're, you're not going to stay with us. So let's just wait two weeks and enroll you somewhere or to send you to school. Then you land at, you know, your, uh, you know, let's say a residential treatment center because there's not enough beds. They're like, okay, wait another two weeks. Like, you're definitely not going to stay here. So we'll wait. You land at your foster home and finally they're like, well, you might not stay here because we know you move around a lot. So let's just wait. And then by that time, you miss a month of school. If you're a kindergartner, well, you've just lost a, a tremendous amount of growth. Uh, if you're a high schooler, your credits are now completely messed up. Um, and your, your new school system may not even possibly 
uh, even accept your credits or you took ninth grade bio when they teach it their senior year and you don't fit into that system. Um, so what we saw was that that was leading to what is an abysmal high school graduation rate, 43% for the state of Minnesota last year. We didn't even record it until our organization pushed the state to do so. It's a requirement of ESSA, the federal law, and we were out of compliance. And it wasn't until my organization started advocating around this that we then started following the law. And now we have this data and the data is damning. It is the worst data of any community that we record. Even when we subsect for race, homelessness, uh, we know that fosters are the anchor in this data. And so I think it says something that at least in the high school graduation data it is better to be homeless, but have some type of support network, hopefully, than it is to be in foster care and technically have a place to stay, but not have anyone that you know really is measuring that. And so after working with our foster youth uh, to engage in the human centered design process after this, what we recognized and heard from them was that we need to close something that, you know, that I call the hope gap, which is that you're 13, you're starting ninth grade. What's it matter if you are successful in school? There's, there's no rainbow at the end of this, uh, you know, road. There's no one borrowing on your behalf. There's no one that has been saving, uh, for you. And there's no one that's going to co-sign a loan for you to go to school. So what is the point? So a lot of young people then, as rational actors, they do other things. Uh, and what we knew is that we had to close that. Because like 85% of fosters want to go to school, they just simply don't have you know, the resources or the support to do so. So for us, you know, one of our formal philosophies is that uh, what does justice look like? And we ask them to define that, at least in this context. And then we will negotiate based on power after that. So we went after the entire deal. What would it mean to go after everything? Because yeah, let's say, you know, the cost of college is $50,000, but we reduce it to 10. Guess what? 10 isn't, it's not happening at 10 either. So we have to bring it to zero. So we went after everything. It's the full cost of attendance, dorm, uh, meal plan, books, ancillary fees, childcare, laptop, uh, everything uh, that you need to be successful in school. So really the way I like to say it, free college will pay for everything but the bus that gets you to campus. And so that is what it would will, will take for fosters to do that. Now, the Fostering Higher Education Act passed last year uh, due to a lot of hard work uh, we did in a year with divided government uh, during a pandemic. And in one year, we were told it's impossible. And yet we are here. Uh, and so I really want folks to be able to take advantage of it. It's $3.7 million per year in the base. Those of you that are familiar with the capital, that is uh, a really hard thing to do. Um, and, you know, really the way I speak about it is that Minnesota made me a promise when they separated me from my family. And they made it all to my four siblings is that they were going to do better by us than if they had left us. Well, my brother's incarcerated. One is missing. Uh, you know, one's just trying to make it on a high school diploma. Uh, and one is trying to go back to school. And I'm helping her do that. One in five 
I don't think you can say that you've you've met any measure of that promise. Uh, and so we we see this as a correction for at least part of it. But this is true and covers you. Uh, it's called the Fostering Independence Grants, whether you are returned home, whether you are adopted, or you age out of foster care. And so if you experience any amount of out-of-home placement from age 13 uh, until you turned 18, you qualify until you're age 27. Five years for a four-year school, three years for uh, anything less than a two-year program. We also um, you know, have two other bills, something called Maya's Law, which closes a loophole that um, children uh, who are making an allegation of abuse uh, against a parent did not have the right to be interviewed separately. So now in extreme cases of abuse, uh, we, we do have that right. And it also extends the right to children who are in foster care to be interviewed separately at any instance in which a worker is visiting them. We know foster homes, um, uh, placements, you know, uh, JDCs, juvenile detention centers, you may not feel open to speak about what's happening there. So now that has to happen. It's mandated for every visit uh, that you get to speak with them separately. That's a big deal. That is uh, has support in both chambers. We are hopeful that uh, conference committee that a, a deal can be made to uh, include that as well in both chambers. And the last part is something called uh, survivor benefits. So Minnesota, along with many states, has had a practice of taking money that was designated to children. So when you enter foster care, the, uh, the state and the counties have taken that money that was des- designated for you. They spend it as part of the general funds. The standard is that this money is supposed to serve your best interest. Uh, your best interest is, t- is for you to get the money. So you know, we're going to have to dig into it, but Minnesota takes anywhere between $6 million and $11 million from its foster youth. We are going to end that practice uh, if the Senate and House can agree on the language. And so we're, we've partnered with DHS and the counties um, to you know, study this issue. Uh, they're going to give us the data. And then in two years, uh, we hope to be able to say that we no longer steal from our children. And that's something that um, you know, we're hopeful about passing this year as well. So uh, we'd like to stay busy, I guess, as a small nonprofit. Um, and, uh, you know, if folks feel so compelled, uh, they could help us out. But, uh, you know, we're a small org trying to do some really big things. Well, you've done some really big things. I mean, in terms of legislation. Uh, and it's so inspiring to hear you speak. And I know, John, or I'm sorry, Don, you're going to jump in and, and, and make similar observations. Um, your website, I know, is going to be really valuable for our listeners to learn more about the organization. But as you said, you're a small nonprofit and doing very impactful things from a systemic uh, position, right, in terms of legislation and really zeroing in on those systemic barriers for our foster youth. So, I, I you know, the fact that you've received so you've been able to achieve so much success in such a relatively short period of time really speaks to your capacity as a leader, but also the compelling uh, nature of the issues that are here. Uh, and Don, I saw you smiling as uh, Juan was talking. You know, Wong, he, his, his explanation of, of the dynamics that are involved with youth who get caught up in this. And, and, you know, I've never, ever thought of myself as being in foster care. 
And um, but what he described in terms of what happens to you, what Wong described was exactly what happened. And going through that between family court being placed in a group home, I even did some time in juvenile detention center, and then even got sent to Glen Lake County Homeschool. All that amounted to the fact that I missed a half a year from school in high school and graduated a half year late. So while I was supposed to be the class of 72, I didn't actually get my diploma to 73 because of everything I had to go through going through the system. And so to hear him talk about that just brought all that back. And all I could do was just shake my head and agree with him because that's exactly what happens. You're being shuttled from this place to that place to this place to that place. You miss school. You do. I mean, and, and there's no, and, and nothing is done by the institutions that removed you to, um, put that back to, you know, to, to, uh, re, uh, reparate that back to you. It's just lost time. And the fact that you're able to take on giants like DHS, um, and, and the county, you know, is, is, is huge. Cause, you know, I didn't share that one of the positions that I had when I was actually director of the chemical health division for Minnesota Department of Human Services. So I had been inside the belly of the beast and looked at how those policies, while, while those policies were created with very good intentions, very seldom are, are, are they being looked at the tail end. And one policy cannot positively impact everyone across the board. One of the classes I took in graduate school was with Esther Wattenberg. Now, she is before your time, Wong, but Esther Wattenberg was the guru in the state of Minnesota for putting in place what we consider in the child's best interest. She drove that back in the 80s and the 90s. That kind of turned um, how how uh the counties in the state deal when it comes with out-of-home placement. I was in her, her class. And she gave us an exercise with five examples. And um, it was me, uh, African-American woman, and then all the rest of our colleagues were, were white women. And it was a small class. There was only like seven or eight of us. But in this scenario, she simply asked us, how many of these kids would we remove? Um, I removed one. The African-American woman removed one, but our white counterparts removed four out of the five case scenarios. And when Esther asked us why, my answer was very similar to the African-American woman. We were familiar with the strengths of those communities, and there was no need to remove those kids. Our counterparts, however, weren't. And so... You know, that's just a small illustration on the front end, I think, sometimes when in the field of social work, so many social workers are white middle class women who lack the insight or experience, the cultural understanding, 
you know, lack the understanding of the, of the of the values, the mores, and everything else that happen in communities outside of their own, and so therefore have a tendency to kind of judge these family situations um, non favorably. And so, you know, one of the things we did at Metro State Social Work is we brought in the aspect of training our social workers on top of the regular social work uh, curriculum, introducing them to the uh, com- uh, the concept of comparative racial and ethnic analysis and learned how and uh, to get an understanding of the impact that uh, discriminatory practices have had on the African-American, Native American, Asian, and Latino community in hopes that that additional awareness would help those social workers break down some of those misunderstandings and conception cross-culturally and, and hopefully help those social workers become much better and capable of working cross-culturally and hopefully um, on the front end at least help begin to reduce some of those out-of-home placements. But it's a small program and we can only get 24 students through each semester. So, you know, we have, we were chunking away at it, but, but, you know, we were, we were passionate about that work because we really hope to be able to change how some of those social workers worked with those families. Because unfortunately, that's where social workers end up is in those type of positions. Yeah. I mean, there's like, I feel like we've just barely touched the, you know, conversation there's just so much more yeah because like foster care is really uh i think the a great encapsulation over for all of our systems i would make the argument that like fosters because we're 100 percent in the government's care that we are uh for lack of a better word word like a great control group for the quality of care the government receives right if we can't do right by fosters then as a government we can't do right by anybody and so I, you know, I think, you know, we, we, we are the canary of uh, good or bad governance for a state. But really, you know, with all due respect for what Metro State is trying to do, I think as a system, we are too focused on the helpers. We're not enough uh, on the community that we're trying to help. That's why as an organization, we bring it to fosters. We try to improve their skills. We, we pass the mic to them and say what needs to change. Uh, that lens and that gate that we must first pass through is then respecting and honoring community experience. And then the social work field can shift. No one goes into social work to cause harm, but then you enter a system uh, that often folks feel like they need to defend uh, institutions that they did not personally build, but were built uh, and now are being maintained. We are running a machinery that is running over our communities. Uh, we have to do something different. Um, you know, I'm excited to figure out what that is, but I don't know what the answer is, but I think, you know, there's a have a lot of young people and not so young people like you and me, Don, that were in care that I think we can start (laughs) to figure this out. He called you out on that, Don. (laughs) Oh no, I totally agree with, with you 100% that we, we try to alert our social workers that, that regardless of what we're teaching you up front, 
if you're not aware of, of where you end up working and you're in the system and you maintain that system, then you become part of the problem. Juan, thank you so much for your insight. You've given us so many kernels of wisdom and uh, startling statistics and startling observations. Uh, I know for me, your statement about uh, being better off as a homeless youth versus a foster care really, really rings through in terms of um, system support and awareness and data uh, and all of that, right? And 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 awareness, quite honestly. Um, but the door is open. Thank you for everything that you do on behalf of our communities, our families who are in the most vulnerable place. How much, much more vulnerable can you be than to be a child uh, that is has been separated from their family, their biological family, and placed in a system that is foreign to you more often than not racially and ethnically as well. Um, that's a really big disruption in a child's life that is unforgettable, right? And, and you can't erase those memories. Um, and then it's followed by a cascade of barriers that you've identified as well as Don, um, this, uh, this segment. We're signing off. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I express are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. Our special guest? I'm Fong Murphy, uh, and I'm still leading Foster Advocates as of the end of this podcast. And we're so grateful that you are. Thank you for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.